Hey everyone, welcome to Meet Sports Alcohol for Monday, March 1st. We have an awesome show for you today. Uh, we first sit down with Marnie Old. Uh, she's a wine professional and author of He Said Beer, She Said Wine, and Wine a Tasting Course. Uh, and she gives a little insight and tips and tricks for how idiots like us can maybe know a little bit more about wine and kind of know what they're talking about. Did you say wine professional instead of sommelier? Because we're not sure exactly how to say sommelier. Sommelier. Because sommelier. when sommelier. I introduced her in the actual interview, which you'll hear in a second, I said wine expert because I yes. don't know how to say sommelier. sommelier. But she says sommelier. sommelier. We should have asked her. Sommelier. Next time. Uh, yep. But it was an awesome interview. It was a lot of fun. Most informational thing we've had on this podcast so far. So uh, that went really well. Uh, and then we're recapping our February sleep challenge, the faux Rogan experience. We talk about Darren's victory, <laughs> Dylan's plans for his workout video, the punishment because he sucked and so much more. So stick around for that. Oh, and we also talk about soccer with Darren Arsenal, our little footy corner with the Flemster. <laughs> All right, take it away, chat. Support for meat sports alcohol is now brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for all your family jewels. They obsess over their technology developments to provide you the best tools in your grooming experience. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. Uh, and now we have an exclusive offer for the loyal meters out there, our listeners, 20% off plus free shipping with the promo code meet at manscaped.com. They just sent us a bunch of awesome stuff. We got a new sponsor. We're super jazzed about it. Uh, they sent us their full uh, Manscaped uh, perfect package. I just used it. JMO is just unboxing it. Um, and I got to say, it's unbelievable. It works wonders. My balls have never been so smooth. And so I used it the other day. JMO is about to use it and come back and live report the results. Yeah, wait. So I actually have not opened this yet. This is my first time seeing this. Dylan, you've used it. What's your review of it? Like, what was it like? What was, I, just so I, I know am, what I'm getting into here. Just, okay. Yeah. I'm not. So here's. So they sent us uh, the perfect package, which includes the lawnmower 3.0. Check this thing out. It's got an LED light. You hear that? So you can see in all your, you know, dark nooks and crannies down there to make sure you're getting all your spots. It's got this ceramic blade. So no nicks, no scratches, all smooth. And so they also sent ball deodorant and ball toner, uh, the crop preserver. And what you got to do is you go in, you get the full shaving done, um, yeah. you get everything done. And then you get a little bit of the ball toner post shave. Yeah. It's just a little spritz. One, two. Mm -hmm. um, and you liven up. You feel fresh. You feel ready to go. And then you toss a little crop preserver down there. Okay. It's, you know, and it's crazy because like we put deodorant on normally, right? 
why wouldn't we use ball deodorant? Like it's, it's disgusting down there. And we just like, let it happen. No longer. Thanks to Manscaped. Ball toner is actually what they used to call me in high school. <laughs> they say, hey, ball toner, get over here, dumbass. Uh, so it's nice to see that there's actually a good ball toner in the world. Dude, I'm telling you, this is going to change your life. My balls, your balls will thank you. My balls are currently thanking me. Uh, and for all the meters out there, this is going to be a live reaction in real time. Jamo's going to go shave his balls and come back and report the results. All right, I'll be back. See how this thing goes. This is real, by the way. I'm actually going, I'm pausing our Zoom right now. And I'm going to shave my balls. Like, this isn't for dramatic effect. No, I'll be right back. I'll talk to yeah. you soon. <laughs> All right. Jamo's back. Uh, he just shaved his balls. Uh, and he's going to give us the uh, the update on how that went using the lawnmower 3.0 by Manscaped. I'd say the biggest emotion I'm feeling right now is stupid. I feel stupid for not getting this sooner. I yes. feel actually like an idiot. Like yeah. the fact that this, this is the third iteration of the lawnmowers, the lawnmower yeah. 3.0. Um, the fact that I didn't get this sooner is idiotic. I've been nicking my balls while trying to trim them for my entire life. Every years, de a decade, a decade of that. Meanwhile, this exists. Um, it's incredible. The ball toner was amazing. The yep. the softness of the touch of the these ceramic. bristles at the end, the ceramic. It's, yeah, yeah, the ceramic yes. blade. So you don't. It's 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 really incredible. It's revolutionary. It's more impressive than anything they've done at SpaceX or, yes. or Boeing. I'll yes. just say that. Yes, yes, yes. No, I would I give just... this company a $15 trillion valuation. I know, I know, I know. Um, yeah, no, it's, I, I felt the exact same way. I, I finished up and I was like, why have I been living like such a Neanderthal for so long? I've had ball hair since I was, you know, Four months old. <laughs> so I can't believe I, it's taken me this long. Um, but yeah, no, I truly, it feels like I'm a little baby boy down there, but in like a really great way. Like my, it's so soft. And another thing they sent in uh, the, uh, the anti-chafing underwear. I know I'm a big chafe guy. JMO, you're a big chafe guy. Hell Yeah. Whenever, uh, whenever COVID's done, we go back to festivals. I know, you know, we normally do like the baby powder, whatever it is to just like, you know, make sure that we don't get chafed down there. Now we have a solution, the anti-chafing underwear. Yeah. It's honestly going to be a lifesaver. I yeah. can't even imagine. I mean, dealing with all the powder and shit to make sure that you don't chafe down there. Like this is just is a one-stop shop fix yeah. to all your, all your problems right here. So again, you get 20% off and free shipping with the code MEAT, M-E-A-T, MEAT at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code MEAT. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Now watch this drive. We now welcome on wine expert and wine educator, Marnie Old. 
Uh, she's author of He Said Beer, She Said Wine, and Wine, a Tasting Course, which we'll be discussing a bit today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Marnie. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Jameson and Dylan. It's, it's real, really an honor to be invited to join you. Yeah. Well, I don't know about that. These yeah. points call, <laughs> I don't know if I'd qualify us as an honor, but it's definitely, we really appreciate you coming on. And um, one thing that we were actually just talking about in, before we started recording is pretty much how you built this book, Wine, a Tasting Course, and a lot of the work you do about, about just teaching people who might be like intimidated by wine or find it confusing or difficult, um, really breaking it down for them. And like I was saying before, that's pretty much Dylan and myself to a T. So you're kind of the perfect guest to come on and help us learn more about wine here. Yeah, well, that book is a bit of an exception to the rule. If you look at most wine books, they they tend to be organized the same way. You know, this is how wine is made. Here are the regions of the world that make wine. Here are the grapes we use to make it and so on. The problem with that approach is that until you have some context, it's really hard to memorize all of this data, unfamiliar terms, unfamiliar regions, unfamiliar grapes. It, it gets a little overwhelming. So what's different about my book, Wine, a Tasting Course, and one of the reasons that it's it's now, I think it's in 18 languages now. It's one of the mm. primary bo uh, books used as a basic text to introduce people in wine courses. Um, it's because it flips things around. It approaches it the same way a newcomer to wine First, you have to learn how to taste it and attach words to the characteristics and be able to describe it to somebody at the wine store in order for them to be able to help you find what you're looking for. So it kind of flips the normal sequence on its ear and starts with the big picture. What do all wines share before it drills down into the things that make each wine different from one another? And that alone is, I think, is what has made it so incredibly effective and so popular. That's interesting, too, because another just to quote again from your book, one thing that you said in the book and one thing it sounds like you're saying now is just enjoying wine is easy, but communicating about it is difficult. Uh, and very much. Yeah. And I found I found that and I imagine I'm going to find that during this interview, communicating that wine is going to be difficult. Uh, but when you're teaching about wine and, and you're talking about it or writing about it, how much of the process it is like teaching people? how to taste wine or how much is just like teaching a vocabulary and and like introducing introducing terms to them for them to like understand wine and and what they're tasting mostly the biggest challenge really in talking and teaching about wine is helping people develop some confidence in their own skill set because everybody already knows how to taste wine the challenge is that the vocabulary we use is technical it's acquired right and until somebody explains to you which words we use to describe which characteristic in wine people feel intimidated they feel insecure about it and and here's the real issue if we were talking about tasting, I don't know, pasta sauce or beer or, you know, many other things, there would not be this kind of social stigma attached to it. But because wine is something that historically has been at the pinnacle of quality in the beverage universe, you know, mm -hmm. drinking wine and knowing about wine is, is a sign of success and has been since the times of ancient Greece and ancient Egypt. Okay. I mean, that was when the kind of masses drank beer, but the noble families were the ones drinking wine. They were the ones who could afford it. Mm -hmm. And so in the United States in particular, because this is a culture where we didn't all grow up with wine on the table. It's not like Italy. It's not like France where you're having wine at lunch and wine again at dinner and nobody's thinking much about it, right? Because of that, wine has this incredible kind of social yardstick value in the United States where sounding like you know what you're talking about with wine can 
help your career. It can impress your date. It can do all of these amazing things, right? And so people people stress about it more than they really should. Realistically, this is a food product. It is an agricultural product. It's fermented grape juice. It tastes good. It looks good. People like the way wine looks, the way it smells, the way it tastes, the way it feels in their mouth, and even how it makes them feel. But because we have this kind of inbuilt insecurity about it, we're often afraid to open our mouths. We're often um, worried we're going to say something wrong, do something wrong, buy the wrong wine, be embarrassed somehow. And that's just silliness. So I have dedicated my life to trying to banish this stigma and make wine as easy and as fun as possible for people to talk about and taste. So you, um, you were mentioning before we were talking that you used to be a marketing consultant. Um, now you seem to be more in the realm of just focusing on wine. How did you transition to that? Cause I think, I mean, I currently, my day job is a consultant and being able to just drink wine and talk about wine sounds a lot better than my current job. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I do have to confess that when I said I was a marketing consultant, I am, but I was consulting about wine marketing specifically, uh, okay. because okay. unlike a lot of people, um, I sort of fell into the wine trade very, very young and never left. I, When I was a young person in Philadelphia, I had been, my dad was a geography professor and I knew enough about academia and the way it was structured that I only really wanted to learn for my own curiosity. I didn't want to follow a degree path. Mm -hmm. And of course, they eventually push you out when you do that. But I was working in restaurants, earning tips, meeting fascinating people, moving into fine dining restaurants. I was working by the time I was, let's see, uh, 19, I was working at the Four Seasons Hotel in Philadelphia, which had an incredible fine dining restaurant, one of the best in the city. And I had to start learning about wine. And I discovered almost by accident that I had this strange combination of assets in my skill set. I had been, I'd grown up in Canada and gone to school in what they call French immersion. So from kindergarten to grade 10, every class I had every day was in French. So I had impeccable pronunciation and sense of French grammar. That is the right language to know in the wine world. Trust me. The second thing was, as I mentioned, my dad was a geography professor. I already had a clear sense of the single most important flavor factor in the world of wine, which is, is a region warmer or cooler? Is the slope tilted towards the sun or away? I knew where the bodies of water were. I, I had a very clear sense of where these regions were, and I could picture how the geography, the terrain, and the geology could affect the wine style. So that ge geographic knowledge was hugely helpful for me as a young person getting into the wine trade. But then the third piece of it was super helpful in restaurants. And that's that when I was a kid, I was a dancer. I was that ballerina kid. I was spending, you know, 20 hours a week at the dance studio until I was 15 or 16 and discovered boys, right? And that theater training, that understanding of performance and, you know, th those skills serve you so well in restaurants. There's a reason why actors are waiters and waiters are actors. It's because it's all acting. You are performing. You're in a role when you're out on the stage in a restaurant. And I just love the energy of it. I love the performance of it. And I, I found that the wine side of the restaurant universe was poorly understood, was poorly managed. It was often something that even the people doing it for a living found intimidating. And I found it energizing. So I embraced it. I took it on as my career. And by the time I turned 25, I had the top fine wine buying position for a restaurant in the state of Pennsylvania. In Philadelphia, wow. I was buying for a restaurant. I don't know 
how somebody decided it was a great idea to give a $2 million budget to a 25 year old, but somehow they did. And I took it and ran with it. Luckily for them, I was honest and didn't rip them off. And uh, the rest <laughs> is history. So a lot of people talk about like a wine drunk uh, versus like a beer drunk or like a vodka drunk. Do you think that there is actually a difference? Like you feel like more chilled out or is that just like a people like an excuse people used to you know have a glass of wine every day with dinner i would not be surprised if people are romanticizing their high a little bit i mean that that's only to be expected alcohol is for many people i mean i do this every day so it's a little bit less the case for me but for most people, this is something that you do on a weekend to enjoy your night off. You do it more on a vacation than you do on a work night and so on. But I definitely do notice a difference in the, the body sensations, but I, I actually notice a bigger difference between different spirits, like rum versus tequila versus gin to me is really noticeable in the way that it affects me. Wine versus beer, less so. The only real difference there with those lower alcohol fermented products, and it's not just wine or beer, it also includes cider and sake, all of the fermented beverages, not the distillates. Mm -hmm. Generally, I find that they affect me in a fairly similar way. The only difference is we, in wine, you have this super high level of acidity that makes you hungry. So you want to eat, right? So it's, it's, it's wanting to go with food at the same time as being a great accent for food. With beer, it's the other side of the coin for me. I know there's a lot of people who love beer and food together, but to me, I enjoy beer, but it fills me up. The carbonation, the, the higher liquid volume, all of it just kind of makes me feel satisfied sooner. So for me, I'll chill and have a beer and that's, that's its own activity. If I'm drinking wine, I want to be eating. And so to me, I think that the sensations are more around other physical components, not the alcohol itself. And, uh, and I definitely do notice like for me, rum always makes me want to dance right? Gin makes me want to sit and argue. And, you know, like it's, it's, it, it seems like there's different responses. It might be different for different people too. Yeah. I mean, meat sports, alcohol title of the podcast. We're almost like touching on it right there. You know, food goes with alcohol <laughs> for Dylan and I sports are right exactly. along with it. There's just a combination of activities mm -hmm. that go along with these things. Yeah. No, the, the acidity in wine is actually how we came up with the title meat sports, alcohol. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, so getting into a bit of like the actual like tasting techniques and things like that. Um, I know after you know, we wrap up with a few questions here, we're actually going to do a wine tasting here with you. Um, but what are just some basic traits that people need to know and steps and just the basics of tasting wine? What are some like the few key pointers that, sure. that you'd want people to know? Well, if you think about it, one of the biggest differences between wine and other drinks is actually the vessel that we serve it in, right? Because if you think about a beer glass or a coffee cup or a juice glass or anything like that, they tend to be a little more practical, right? Like they're, they're bigger and they don't have this funny stem on the bottom and you fill them up to the rim, right? Mm -hmm. Wine, one of the easiest ways to remember what the whole wine tasting thing is about is just look at the way this glass is shaped. This is a handle for your hand down here. We never fill the wine glass to the top because we want a room, room to be able to do this, to swirl the wine around. And the reason for that is that almost all of the pleasure that we take from wine is olfactory. It's through the nose. So this, this impractical glass 
tall, easy to knock over, easy to break, is actually designed to make the wine smell bit better. That's what we're doing. When we hold the stem and swirl, we are capturing the evaporation of volatile components, esters, aldehydes, fusel oils that leave liquid form and get trapped in this headspace above the surface of the wine. Hmm. And then because we have such tall sides here, they're trapped there and I can stick my nose in and get a concentrated blast of the aroma of the wine. It's like a preview of how the wine is going to taste, but just through the nose. So everything about wine tasting, one of the things to remember is that it's all centered around your sense of smell. Of course, wine is beautiful to the eyes. Of course, it tastes good to the tongue, but most people don't realize that almost everything you think of as flavor is not actually tasted with your tongue, with your taste buds, because your tongue is pretty primitive. I mean, it can only detect six things. We know from science that your tongue can only detect sweetness, sourness, bitterness, saltiness, something called umami, which is roughly the yumminess of MSG, and fat at a very, 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 very delicate level. You can actually detect the yumminess of things like butter and, and meat drippings and so on. Now, olfactory is something completely different. There are tens of thousands of things that every human being can smell and discern and detect. And when we detect those things from the outside, smelling this way from the glass, we call those things odors. But if we take the wine into the mouth this way, there's a connection between the back of your mouth directly. It mainlines the scent right up to the back behind your sinuses. There's an olfactory center where the nerve center for sense of smell is located. And so what's happening is that you're getting one version of the sensation this way. You're getting an amplified version of it this way because your body heat warms the wine, takes more components into a volatile gas state so that you can actually detect them this way. So it's like, we call it odor when it comes this way. We call it flavor when it comes this way, but it's olfactory in both cases, if that makes sense. That does make sense. Uh, I this is a I do see how this could be a bit overwhelming. Like I was just like even with the six trait or the six um, tastes that you have, like mm -hmm. how do you go about identifying the different ones that are present in different wines and which ones you enjoy and how does that inform like what wine you should buy or you know help help like. Well, by comparison to other experiences is the easiest way to do it. So when we talk about those tongue tastes, and, and this is really important because if you think about it, like if you plug your nose, you can't taste. There's a reason why you don't go to a fancy restaurant when you have a cold. It's because if you don't have airflow through that olfactory passage, you're not going to get the full impact of the flavor, whether you're having an amazing steak or a cheap burger. It doesn't matter, right? You mm -hmm. lose, you dampen down flavor, and you can only detect the tongue tastes on contact. But as I mentioned, there's six things that you can detect with your tongue, but only two of those have any significant relevance in the world of wine. There's no salt in wine. We don't have to worry about that. There's none of the bitterness that you find in beer from hops or in coffee from the roast of the beans. So we don't have to worry about that either. Umami, uh, it's present, but it's, it took us, you know, hundreds of years in laboratory testing to identify it. So most people are not going to just stumble across it when they're tasting wine. And same thing with fat. Luckily, there's no fat content in the wine. There's plenty of alcohol. We don't need any of that, right? So really, what does that leave us with? It leaves us with acidity and sweetness. And those are really the two dimensions of flavor that you can detect with your tongue. And that's on contact. Like literally the moment wine touches your tongue, you trigger your sensors on the tip of the tongue for sweetness, down the sides of the tongue for acidity. And it's not that those taste buds only occur in those places. All 
of your six sensors are scattered throughout the tongue, but they're concentrated more around the edges than in the center. And there's a there's like 10 times more sensors for sweetness on the tip of your tongue than there is on the back of your tongue and so on. So if you're looking for sweetness in wine, you are gonna take a taste and right away, you are just gonna pay attention to that immediate, like that attack, that instant sensation. If you can detect any sweetness at all in the wine on the tip of the tongue, that usually means there's at least 1% residual sugar in the wine. We call it residual because it's leftover from the grape sugar, right? So it's unfermented sugar that has not been converted into alcohol. And if you can detect any sweetness on the tip of the tongue, then that wine is not fully dry. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where we start running into language issues because <laughs> the word that we use in the wine world for wines that have no sugar is dry. And this can be confusing. I mean, it's not just English. Every language, secco in Italian, trucken in German, and so on. We're talking about a liquid that is clearly pretty wet, right? And yet we use that word dry to talk about it descriptively, but we're not talking about a wine A dry wine is not a wine that's not wet. A dry wine is a wine that is not sweet. We use that term and have for centuries. Winemakers use that word dryness to describe the absence of sugar in any drink. It's true of wine. It's true of beer. It's true of cocktails. It's true of martinis, right? When Mm -hmm. we say something is dry, all we mean is that it has no detectable presence of sweetness. Okay. That actually is super helpful because I think I've used the term dry to like describe wine or like talking about it. And it's, I've just been totally bullshitting. I've had no idea what that word means. So you are not alone, Dylan. (laughs) This is actually the single most misunderstood word in the beverage universe. And I think honestly, it has to do with, you know, when people were growing up watching like 60s and 70s TV shows, you knew that dry was a good thing because, you know, fancy people order a glass of dry wine or a dry martini, but nobody actually ever explains what that means. And so there's a huge number of people. It's, it's, it's unfortunate, but a lot of people who are trying to describe what they like in wine are using that word incorrectly. A lot of people think dryness refers to a wine's level of acidity or to the level of tannin in a red because tannins have a component that's an astringent from the skins of the grapes that literally dries out your mouth, makes it feel like somebody has patted off the top of your tongue with a paper towel. That is not a dry wine. That's a tannic wine. And the term dry literally in beverages only means one thing. It only ever means one thing. It means the absence of sugar. It's like a new take on the question that took over the internet that is water wet thing that everyone was talking about. Dry. Is wine dry? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> Only some people really know. Yeah. No. Well, now everyone who's listening knows because it, it's not too, too complicated. It's I'd like to well, think that's that. super helpful. You know, we've just got through dry January, right? But I, I, I choose to interpret that a little differently. I just drink dry wines. <laughs> Perfect. I think, <laughs> I, think I think the last you know, 15 minutes that you've been on has been by far the most educational this podcast has ever been. I mean, this is, (laughs) we normally do bullshit. So (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Really, really. Um, I think, well, I have been accused in the past of having a very high word to fact ratio. (laughs) We we can probably be accused of the same thing. So (laughs) exactly. Um, so I, now, I know if we want to get into it, uh, we were thinking of doing a tasting. You can kind of lead us through. Ta- Dylan and I both bought 
nice bottles of wine. Well, nice to my standards. It's probably the most <laughs> expensive nice. bottle of wine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we each have a red and a white, and then you have a rosé. Um, I do. So we're thinking, Dylan, do you want to take the red or the white? I would take the red. Oh, maybe. Uh, do you sure. have a preference? No, no, I'll go get the white. You wanted the red. <laughs> yeah, I did because the red's right next to me. It's right here. Okay, I'll and do the, the white. And the wine is chilled. I'll do the, the white. I'll do the white. I'll do the white. <laughs> Perfect. But that's something I wanted to ask about was like chilling wine. Because my impression, and I feel like a lot of people's impression is, you know, white wine goes in the fridge, red stays out, and that's pretty much all you think about. But I imagine there's much more to it about like, you know, what what temperature like white wine needs to be set at or how long you keep it in the refrigerator, things like that. Well, and people do make a big deal about temperature. Once you start getting into the stratosphere of like collectible wines and serving them at the proper temperature and storing them at the proper temperature, it can seem a little confusing, but if you boil it down to the basics, I'm going to want you to think about it this way. Pretty much everything that we drink is a beverage don't we keep most of it in the fridge, right? Like we do, we we chill our water, we chill our juice, we chill our milk, we, we chill our cocktails, our beer, you know, pretty much everything that we drink, we normally drink at refrigerator temperature. And that's true for the vast majority of wines as well. There's only one exception to that, and that is when the wine is red. So we mm -hmm. chill white wine, but we also chill sparkling wine. We also chill rosé wine. We also chill dessert wines and we chill most fortified wines like sherries and ports as well. The only exception is dry red wine. And the reason for that is that same compound I was talking about earlier. It's called tannin. It's the secret to red wines, high levels of antioxidants. It's compounds from the skins of the grapes that have color and flavor, but also astringency. It's the thing that kind of dries your tongue out after taking a sip of a red wine. Well, that compound is extremely temperature sensitive. And if you drop a wine below, say, 60 degrees Fahrenheit or so, what happens is that that tannin starts getting more and more aggressive, almost feeling like sandpapery and unpleasant in the mouth, right? So we don't keep our red wines in the fridge for that reason. Mm -hmm. But I will say that most red wines do taste better, a little cooler than room temperature, or certainly a little lower than American room temperature. Because let's be honest, uh, you know, you and I, Jameson, we we come from Canada. We we're hardy folks. We we keep our our homes a little cooler than they do in the United States. The same is true in Europe. And so, temperature for red wines, I find that they tend to give you a, a more appealing flavor profile if they're mm -hmm. a little cooler than the counter. So here's what I would say. All of your wines except reds, keep them in the fridge, but then take them out about 20 minutes before you're going to drink them. And that'll allow them to warm up just enough because the fridge is a little too cold. You want them to warm up enough to be able to bloom flavor-wise and really give you their full flavor impact. Red mm -hmm. wines are the reverse. Keep your reds out at room temperature, but put them in the fridge 20 minutes before you're going to drink them. And that will just take the edge off that American room temperature, bring it down low enough to really allow the true aromatics to shine through. And then the other key with temperature is just hold the glass by the stem. If you hold wine up here, your body heat warmth warms this liquid, which is extremely temperature sensitive, really quickly. So that's why we have little stems. This is the handle. That's where your hand goes on the bottom of the wine glass. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. I feel like there's a few things here before I pour this wine that I need to like... 
the steps to it. I'm just pouring it normally, right? But then you just need to smell it before. I need to swish it around. You need to swish it around your mouth. Get I just want to make sure I'm tasting this correctly. Get some in your glass. And the way wine glasses work is you never want to fill them up more than halfway. And the reason for that is you want to have room to do this thing we call swirling, which it's it's kind of... I'm an expert, obviously I'm doing this freehand, but if you guys are beginners with this, I want you to hold the stem of the glass as if it was a pencil and okay. put the glass down on a tabletop or a surface and pretend you're drawing little circles on the table, just like a spirograph when you were a kid, like little circles on the table. And what you'll see is that the wine splashes up in a kind of spiral pattern around the glass. And what is that doing? It's getting the glass wet up almost close to the rim. And what that's doing is it's doubling or tripling the surface area of this wine. And surface area is where the evaporation happens of those scent and aroma compounds that I was talking about. So by increasing the surface area, you are increasing the rate of evaporation of those volatile components. And so what is this doing? It's Frankly, it's like turning up the volume on your stereo. You're just doing it for your nose. You're amplifying the smell of this wine by splashing it around on the inside of the glass and then dipping your nose in to take a sniff. Yeah. Mm. So it <clears throat> accents the, the, the smell a bit more. You can look at the legs, right? That's good. And it makes you look like you know what you're talking well, you about, know. right? You guys, you know, everybody wants to look at the legs. The legs are pretty fabulous, gotta say, but let's explain it? to your listeners what legs are. So I don't know what legs explain, are. I just, explain I just said it. To other, I know what legs are, but maybe for the listeners that don't. <laughs> I don't know okay, so what legs are. This actually is a bit of a throwback. Okay, so let's, let's go back like 150 years to Europe where for hundreds and hundreds of years, wine was only really made in any significant way in Europe. And there, almost all of the better wines came from warmer regions. And in warmer regions, grapes get sweeter, they develop more sugar, and that sugar is the raw material that converts into alcohol. So when you ferment grape juice into wine, stronger wines are the ones with higher alcohol. And this pattern that you see, when you swirl the glass of wine, you'll notice look at the top edge of the splash and then wait, let the wine sit for a moment and you'll start to see little drips. We call them tears or legs starting to form and come down the side of the glass. And if you wait for a minute or two, you'll see they form in a really even pattern, right? It's, it's physics, okay? This is the basics of viscosity. The mixture of wine and alcohol creates this pattern and the higher the alcoholic strength or the more dissolved sugar in the wine, or the two combined, the more viscous the liquid is. And so the slower the tears are to form and the slower they fall down the sides of the glass, that's a visible indication of alcohol content and sugar content. So those are the two things, alcohol content and high sugar content are the things that can give you those slow moving tears. And for hundreds of years in Europe, that was always a good thing. So slow moving tears was a sign of quality. But of course, now that we make wines in super hot places like Argentina, Australia, California, they've got tears and legs all day long, even in their cheap rot gut. So the tears don't mean as much about the quality of the wine as they used to a century or two ago. So mine, the one that I'm drinking is from California, Monterey, mm -hmm. and it looks like it is fast moving legs. So that's not bad. That's not saying because it's no, from it's a warm a place. Thing. It's okay. Realistically, there are delicious styles of wine that are high in alcohol, 
There are delicious styles of wine that are low in alcohol. So whether a wine has tears, whether they're moving fast or slow is really um, irrelevant. (laughs) Reality is that nowadays, the vast majority of wines taste good. It used to be not even so long ago, like a hundred years ago, we didn't have full control over the fermentation process. And let's remember, this is like making cheese, right? This is fermentation. This is the one of the initial stages of spoilage, right? That we're trying to control and then trap in amber and protect and be able to use to extend the life of a fresh product, right? So this idea that wines are good or bad and you have to judge their quality on first sip to show that you are a sophisticated wine customer. I'm sorry, but this is just, you know, hooey, you know, it has been for 50 years. The reality is there has never been a better time to be alive as a wine drinker because the vast majority of wines, even the cheap stuff in boxes tastes a hundred times better than it did a century ago because we have control. We have a better understanding of the science of winemaking. We have better packaging to protect it from oxidation and microbiological spoilage. So the chances of encountering actually spoiled bad wine are so close to zero now that you really don't have to worry so much about checking out the wine's legs. Making me feel better about all the boxed wine I drank in college. I was just about to say, I I love the idea of of going back in time a hundred years and bringing someone a box of Franzia and them thinking that it's like this incredible wine. And this is the mind blowing part for so many people like, okay, so we think about the finest wines of the world when we talk about the Grand Cruz of Burgundy that they've been producing since the 1100s and the Grand Cruz of Bordeaux, which have been a thing since the 1750s and, you know, amazing ports and all of these high quality wines. Those wines, have they improved in recent centuries through better understanding of science and viticulture and managing, you know, the the hygiene in the wineries and so on? Of course they have, but they were already damn good to start with. So they've been improving slowly, incrementally over time. The wines that have improved by like mind blowing leaps and bounds is the cheap wines. Cheap wines taste better today than they ever have in human history. And that's true of cheap beer. That's true of cheap cider. That's true of cheap every fermented beverage there is. is This is great news. This is great news for us cheap wine drinkers. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Right. So So I've been swirling mine around for like this entire time so i think it's time and it looks like you have yours too dylan so so let's walk through the basic steps shall we so you guys can learn how to taste wine like a pro so here's how it goes you have your wine in your glass you have your hand on the stem not on the bowl of the glass so you're holding the stem oh yeah oh yeah you'll get the hang of this jameson one of these so first thing we're going to do is we're going to just tilt the wine over and look at it right look mine is pink Yours is not, right? You have a nice clear white one, Dylan, and you have one that is red, Jameson. So we're just going to look and appreciate the color. And my guess is that without any formal training, you are all able to tell which wine is the red wine, which wine is the white wine, and which wine is the rosé. Yes, (laughs) Because the color is pretty distinct and pretty clear, right? (laughs) So the next step is going to be for us to swirl. So we're going to, we're going to look at the wine and and sometimes we call this the, you'll hear people talk about the five S's, the six S's, the seven S's, you know, there's many S's as you want in this process, but it starts with seeing the color of the wine, then swirling the wine in the glass, then sniffing, taking a nice deep sniff out of the bowl of the glass. So see, swirl, sniff, sip, here we go. 
squish and you really do want to like treat it like Listerine in the morning. You want to squish it around every surface on the inside of your mouth, hit every taste bud, warm it with your body heat before you S swallow. Mm. I normally recommend holding it in the mouth for at least one second up to three, four, five seconds, but you really want to coat every surface on the inside of the mouth, then swallow. And then the final step, what I call the seven, the number seven on the list of S's is just to savor it for a moment. Stop and pay attention to what's happening in your mouth because this, in this moment after you swallow is when you make assessments. And when you can compare this wine to previous wines that you've enjoyed. And if you use, a, like we as wine professionals, well, what do we do? Well, we break wine down into components that are based on which sense is perceiving it. So we look at that color, we classify the color, but we also decide, is it pale? Is it medium? Or is it a deep color for that category of wine? We then think about the taste. We think about the sweetness level. Is it low, medium, or high compared to other wines? Is the acidity level low, medium, or high compared to other wines? Then we think about the smells, the olfactory properties of the wine, and we evaluate them on the same low, medium, high scale. It's just that the olfactory properties are so diverse that we kind of divide them into two buckets, right? So on in terms of wine flavor, I have a rosé, right? That is a stainless steel fermented rosé. Dylan, you have a Chardonnay, which is a barrel fermented Chardonnay. Jameson, you have a Pinot Noir, which is also aged in oak. And so what's interesting here is if you sniff these wines, do you notice any, and you guys, your, your podcast is called Meat Sports Alcohol. So I assume you have some familiarity with a few distilled spirits like whiskey and like cognac. You might notice in your wines, you have something I don't have. You have a smell that is associated more with bourbon or cognac, and it comes from the use of oak barrels in aging or fermenting the wine or both. Mine is stainless steel. So I have nothing but fruit, all fruit. And in the wine world, we use that term fruit in a very different way than you do in normal plain English. Like in English, fruits are apples, pears, bananas, cherries, and so on, right? Fruits. In the wine world, when we talk about a wine's fruit, we are very specifically talking about the aromatic, the olfactory flavors of the wine that derive from the grapes. It doesn't mean that they always smell and taste like fruits per se, right? So if I had a Sauvignon Blanc in my glass, it might smell herbal and leafy, right? But that herbal quality would be a part of its fruit component. If I had a Syrah in my glass, it might smell like black pepper, ham, or bacon, but that spicy, meaty quality would be a part of its fruit component. If I had a Moscato or a Gewürztraminer in my glass, it might smell overtly of flowers, like to the point where you could dab the stuff behind your ears and go out for dinner wearing it like perfume, right? And that floral quality would be part of the wines, you got it fruit component because in the wine world we use fruit as an umbrella term for all of the smells and flavors present in wine that come from the raw material in this case grapes or the fermentation process so sometimes that's a little earthy sometimes it's a little spicy sometimes it's a little herbal sometimes it's a little floral but it's all part of the fruit if that makes sense the only thing that we divide into a different but different bucket and put it in a different place is that oak smell that you guys have in your wines that I don't have in mine. And that's a smell if you just close your eyes, not only does it remind you of whiskey or cognac, but I want you to think of things like vanilla, melted butter, roasted nuts like almonds. There are dessert spices, not just vanilla bean, 
but also like allspice, clove, nutmeg, cinnamon at very low levels. We think of those as the brown baking spices and there's a distinctive characteristic from oak barrels imparted to the wine that can evoke those smells. I mean, if you stick your nose in the glass and it smells like bourbon or pumpkin pie, essentially, you know, it has been coming into contact with oak barrels at some point. There is no grape on planet Earth that smells like that. That is just a taste that we associate with that process in winemaking of using oak barrels to either uh, use as a vessel for fermentation in the case of white wines like your Chardonnay, Dylan, or as a vessel for aging the wine like your wine, Jameson, if that makes sense. Now, once we've gotten past that, now we've, we've looked at the wine, we've looked at the color, we've assessed two characteristics, the color category and the color depth. On the taste, we've assessed sweetness and acidity. On smell, flavor, as well as odor, we have assessed fruit and oak. There's only one sense less for us to use. And, and no, it is not hearing. We, we do not usually listen to our wines unless you're pouring you know, champagne on your Rice Krispies in the morning and listening to them snap, crackle, pop. Chances are you're not going to get any audio for your podcast off of wines usually, but <laughs> there's one sense left and that is tactile, the sense of touch. I don't mean this. I don't mean you have to reach into your glass with your fingers and feel it with your fingertips. I mean, take it into your mouth and I want you to pay attention to texture. Each one of you now take a sip, squish it around. Mm. My wine is on the very light bodied end of the spectrum. It's barely 11% alcohol. So it's thin and sheer. It's delicate. It feels as, as light as a silk scarf blowing in the summer breeze. But each of you has a stronger wine. Dylan, yours is going to be more richly textured, more like a spoonful of custard. You've got that mouth coating effect that you get when you cook with butter or olive oil. That richness comes both from higher alcohol content and from that oak aging and fermentation process, which enriches the tactile experience of the wine. And you, Jameson, yours is going to be similar to Dylan's in the sense that it will have a lot more richness than mine. It will be more mouth filling, more coating. We call this characteristic body in the world of wine. And body is, there are many factors on a tiny micro level, but the number one factor is, thank goodness, actually declared on the labels, it is alcohol content. So generally speaking, think of 13 and a half to 14 as being normal, medium. The lower the alcohol is below 13 and a half, the lighter the wine is likely to be, the more sheer and delicate it is, is going to feel in the mouth. The higher the wine's alcohol content is over 14%, the richer, the more mouth coating, the more gooey and viscous it will feel in the mouth. It's like adding butter to a sauce as you're cooking. It gets richer and richer and richer to the point where you can feel it on the inside of the mouth. There's a great analogy. When you want to think about body, think about dairy products. It's like comparing skim milk, whole milk, heavy cream. Imagine how they coat the inside of the glass if you were to swirl them in a wine glass like this. The Skim milk would sheet right down. You would barely see an impact on the glass. The whole milk would leave that coating, that dairy fat would cling to the glass and leave you that white kind of ghost image on the glass. Whereas heavy cream would be like a sheet of white paper. You wouldn't be able to see through the glass at all, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same exact effect. Alcohol in the mouth behaves the way fat content does in the mouth. It's just in wine, we talk about body being driven by alcohol. In foods, sauces, for example, a, a delicate vinaigrette 
versus a jus versus a cream sauce. It's the same idea. Body in food is driven by fat. Body in spirits and drinks and alcohol, wine and beer is driven by alcohol content. And then there's one last tactile factor. And I don't have it in my glass because I'm drinking rosé and you don't have it in your glass, Dylan, because you're drinking white. But you, Jameson, I want you to take yeah. a sip of your yeah. Pinot Noir, squish it around. And I can kind of narrate for you what's going to happen here. For the first 10 seconds or so after you take a sip, you're not really going to notice much. But the longer you wait, the more you're going to notice that over time, the top of your mouth, like the roof of your mouth, your soft palate and your tongue are going to start feeling drier and drier and drier. And I mean, not wet this time, not, not sweet. Okay. I mean, actually dry. Like somebody has wallpapered the inside of your mouth with velvet. Okay. Mm -hmm. You were losing moisture. And this comes from an astringent compound in the skins of red grapes called tannin. It is a compound that gives color to wine. It's a compound that gives flavor to wine. It's also a phenolic compound that acts as an antioxidant and makes red wine really good for you. Woohoo! But it is something that definitely has a tactile sensation that it leaves behind in the mouth. And some wines, not the Pinot Noir that you have, because that's a medium tannin red, maybe even a low tannin red, but there are some wines out there that will kind of grip your tongue like a firm handshake, like somebody's decided to wallpaper the inside of your mouth with suede. Others can feel overtly scratchy, almost harshly tannic. And those tend to be high-end wines that are designed for long-term aging. When they're not yet ready to drink at their peak, they can feel assertive, aggressive, like, you know, pit balls got a hold of your tongue and won't let go right? But these components, the ones that we've just walked through, are divided by sense. There's two things we look for on the sense of sight, color category, and color depth. There's two things we look for on the taste bud, taste experience on the tongue with the taste buds. Those are sweetness and acidity. There are two things we look for in terms of aromatics, fruit component and oak component. And then there are two things we look for in texture. One is the body, that weight or richness, the tactile viscosity of the wine that's found in all wines. And then if the wine is red, we can also evaluate its level of tannin because that is something, a property that you only find in red wines. And in each one of those characteristics, if you start assigning them a kind of low, medium, high scale, just based on norms, like lower than normal, higher than normal, you'd be amazed. Just making mental note of those things, you're automatically kind of filing it in, a, in your little mental filing cabinet to compare to the next wine you taste. This is how you build professional style wine experience and you will be pros before you know it. Nice. <laughs> I'm excited. Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much for all of that information. Yeah, that... I, oh, it, that's kind of unfortunate. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. One last trick. I'm going to give you guys a little trick of the trade that took me years to learn as a sommelier and as a wine professional, but it is so empowering. I like to share it. Anytime I'm teaching somebody to taste wine, I like to encourage them to figure out how to judge craftsmanship because craftsmanship and, and preference are completely different. Like when you taste wines, it's pretty obvious right away, whether it suits your personal tastes or not. And most people feel pretty confident saying, I like that wine enough to buy it again, or I didn't like it enough. I'm going to try something different, right? The hard part for most people is judging whether that wine was good 
right? And there's all sorts of stress and insecurity about whether I need to take wine classes to learn to tell good wines from bad wines. And wait a minute, that one costs so much more. It must be good. I, there must be something wrong with me if I don't like it. There's all sorts of crazy anxiety that people have about this stuff. There is one incredibly simple, so obvious once somebody points it out to you way to tell whether wine is well-made. It is so easy. It is, it is based on a judgment of time. When you take a sip of wine, I'm just going to take another sip of my rosé here and show you guys what I'm talking about. Mm -mm -mm. Squish it around the mouth, all that stuff I was talking about earlier, starting now. Okay. I can use the second hand on my watch to pay attention. After you've tasted wine, there's a kind of lingering energy. It's almost like a vibration sensation that happens on the inside of your mouth that lasts longest for the highest quality wines. When you have high quality fruit, when the wine is given hand craftsmanship at the winery, when it's given every possible advantage, when it's babied in refrigerated containers all the way from the vineyard to your retail store to your door, right? Wine has a longer finish. We call it the finish, a wine's length. It resonates on the palate longer. And the simplest way to explain this that I've ever found is actually to use an analogy to sound like, okay, if you have two coffee cups and clink them together, you're going to get a, a very short sound like, right? Just to kind of, it's not an unpleasant sound, but it is one that ends quickly. Cheap wines, low quality wines will have a finish that ends pretty quickly. It's kind of like they start out giving you something good and then Wiley Coyote falls off the cliff, you know, and you, you don't hear from him again. <laughs> Right. But when you start getting into higher quality wines, like what you have, Dylan, and what you have, Jameson, what starts to happen is more like what happens when you clink two good crystal glasses together. Notice how that note <laughs> hangs in the air, right? Or like a silver bell, you get this extension of the moment, this vibrational energy that continues in time. Well-made wines will last and resonate in the mouth that way for about a minute and during that minute that first minute after swallowing that's when wine professionals have their gears going we're we're thinking about the wine sweetness and acidity we're thinking about the fruit and the oak we're thinking about the texture and so on but we're also paying attention to how long that resonance lasts and with the very finest wines in the world and i i can tell you this is my job i have tasted some of the world's very finest wines that resonance lasts longer and longer and longer and longer organic farming will extend the finish biodynamic farming will take it even beyond that lowering the yield of grapes per vine will increase the finish and so on high quality winemaking does it too to the point where when you taste like the world's grand cru burgundies these wines can last and dominate and hold your attention in the mouth with that kind of resonance, that vibrational energy in the mouth for four or five minutes. It's crazy. The mm. length of time, the, the pleasantness of the finish and its duration are the simplest way to judge quality and craftsmanship. And anyone can learn how to do it because it's based just on an evaluation of time. Now, whether you love the wine or don't like the wine, that's purely personal preference. And I couldn't predict your tastes in wine any more than I could guess your taste in music or fashion or art. But your ability to evaluate quality in wine, anyone can do that once they know to look for the finish and judge its duration. Awesome. That is that is yeah. super helpful. I, uh, 
I can't wait to start feeling like I know what I'm talking about. I already feel like I'm going to be talking about this nonstop. Yeah, (laughs) I'm going to bug all my friends. I am going to be looking for legs on like LaCroix I'm drinking. I'm just going to get in the habit of doing this so people can see that I look like I know what I'm talking about. Um, Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This was a lot of fun. Um, uh, As we mentioned before, uh, you can check out uh, Marnie's books. Uh, He said beer, she said wine and wine to tasting course. Uh, you can also find Marnie. Good one. There you go. And it's also going to be re-released towards Christmas, I think, of this coming year in 2021. The, my publisher, DK, we're working right now on a new edition of this book with some new content because there's all sorts of new things happening in the wine world, like organic wines, biodynamic and all that stuff. So we're super psyched. We're going to have a whole new look, a whole new cover, new artwork, and a new edition coming out later this year. That's awesome. So yeah, so you're going to want to check that out when it comes out later this year. Personally, I love the amount of pictures in a book. I always love a good a good picture in a book. And if you like pictures, and <laughs> then that's the book for you. Um, uh, you visual can, learner. Visual you're a visual learning. learner, exactly. Dylan. That, that is the polite way to say what you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> um, and you can also visit our website, uh, marnieold.com. Uh, thanks again so much for joining us. This is a lot of fun. Dude, dude, you got to get a manscaped. A, a, you got to get a manscaped. You actually have to get a manscaped, dude. Are you guys it's, Are you guys like sponsored? I mean, uh, sponsored by them or what's going on with the manscaped? Yeah, we're sponsored by them, dude. They sent us all this free shit. It's Wait, unbelievable. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's dude, look at this. Yeah, look dude. at the stuff you get. And dude, you get 20% off free shipping. You get yeah. 20% using off promo, and free shipping using promo, use promo code, code MEAT at checkout. <laughs> look at this. Look at the box of shit you get. You get uh, underwear, ball toner. You got you, a little uh, oh, how Dude, I, look at this LED light. Damn. Yeah, the light when you when I was like, "Where's the light? How do I turn the flashlight on?" And you were like, "It automatically turns on when you use it." Yeah. I shit my pants. And when that I was, was like, like <laughs> "I'm not kidding," I was like, "I," you know, when I first when we first got it, I was just like, "Oh, a light, that's cool," but like, you know, like, but then you start using it and you get down there and you or you fired like, it up, dude. You have surgical precision. It's crazy. Oh. You yeah. can, you're not firing in the dark anymore. You're, Wait, do you, you ever get like, do you get nicked at all? Or is it like you, a clean? No, that's the no. beauty of it, dude. The ceramic blade has a soft touch. No nicks, no scratches, no cuts, just smooth. My balls are so smooth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, you it's gotta crazy get it. too that like, not, like no one, I feel like the issue here was that nobody was honest about this being a problem like nobody was talking about not being exactly. able to shave their balls until exactly. manscapes came around like they yeah. should have but now you know it's out in the open we're talking about it like and it's there's a solution Promo the code razors for your face and your nuts they're two entirely different potty parts it's like it's like okay i'm gonna put a sock on my hand when it gets cold outside you're using the wrong product for the job it's like a dry French Merlot exactly. and an Ita- a Southern Italian Prosecco. Exactly. That's Two what I was entirely thinking. different compositions. Uh, All right, we're now welcome on Darren. Yeah. Uh, you've already heard him talk. We're going to be recapping our sleep challenge from the month of February because um, it's over. February is over and you won. So Darren, here's your time to shine. What do you, what do you got to say? Oh, oh. Or Dylan's lack of sleep challenge. Oh. Uh. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually surprised by how much sleep I got. Seven and a seven hours, twenty-four minutes, or no, 
seven hours flat over the month of February. That's yeah, that's solid. That seems like the most amount of sleep I've gotten like in my life. I don't know. Yeah. So just to so the ending statistics here. Uh, Darren won at seven hours and two minutes hours of sleep on average for the month of February. I came in second with six hours and 43 minutes of sleep. And Dylan came in at a staggering five hours and 18 minutes on average uh, to come in last place. Yeah. What do you have to say, Dylan? <laughs> you have to say for yourself. Um. This this is this is a bad idea. <laughs> I uh, I mean, I you know I don't get you know bore you with all the details. Uh, working a job that is on East Coast hours and uh, getting up and working out beforehand just doesn't lead to a lot of sleep. Uh, and on the weekends, my original strategy for like banking the weekends like just sleeping 12 hours i actually did the opposite i would just drink every weekend and whoop hates when you sleep or i mean when you drink uh and uh uh i would get like two hours of sleep so i, I like how your response here is i lost because i'm a work hard play harder <laughs> savage weekend warrior waking up exactly every morning at five to work out at yep. the <laughs> the That's break of dawn is. and go out hard on the weekends yeah he was as, like excuse i mean i mean as uh drake once famously said uh i don't take naps because me and the money are way too attached and that's kind of applicable here is i i can't sleep because of just i'm always grinding and getting money also applicable nice. is i only love my bed and my mama i'm sorry <laughs> also my drake seems like you don't like your bed so you can pick and choose there easily my favorite part of this challenge was posting the standings on our instagram at me sports alec uh and just having dylan's like family members and close friends reach out and be like dude dylan you gotta get some sleep bro like are you doing okay <laughs> genuinely concerned <laughs> Yeah. 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 I think I think my aunt reached out. A couple of friends are like, Jesus. Like get your have you thought about what you're gonna do? Have you thought about uh, what you're gonna do for your video? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah you're definitely gonna want to stay tuned. Video. Yeah. You're definitely gonna want to stay tuned for that. I've been working on a lot of um body weight fitness exercises, planks, nice. things like that. I don't want to spoil yeah. too much, um, but it's gonna be interactive uh it's gonna have a whole mess of different um is your shirt gonna body be weight off? exercises is your shirt gonna be off and that's i i will you'll you'll see the outfit i'm gonna have i'm definitely gonna be repping an outfit that's gonna show off all my body weight fitness gains so uh also coinciding end of this challenge <clears throat> dylan's punishment launching our youtube page that's where you'll be able to see the video is meat yes. sports alcohol on youtube we're dominating we're slowly dominating the entire media landscape here yes branching out from podcasting to to youtube so we'll post it on instagram the link uh and twitter and everything like that but you're gonna have to check it out on youtube subscribe yep what, what kind of content is going to be on your youtube page all kinds of good what stuff. can i expect so mostly can fart expect porn <laughs> lots of fart porn videos <laughs> and then the occasional dylan workout video yeah <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so you're gonna want to check that out uh darren you got any uh you got any final 
final thoughts as the uh, the winner here? Um, dude, it's hard to fucking sleep. Like, what's up with that? That's my final thought. Final thought. Um, we uh, we also Darren um, is our resident soccer expert. Uh, he was a member of the Cal men's <clears throat> soccer team. The club version, but he no, was just on Cal the men's, men's soccer. soccer. He was on yeah, a Cal we, we men's soccer team. We'll cut that out. We'll cut that out. Yeah. And he is a massive Arsenal supporter. Uh, and Arsenal, at the time of this uh, recording, uh, just got a big win over Light Light Lightchester Lightchester City Lightchester City Lightchester City. Huge um, dub. Huge dub. Three one. Uh, and so we're going to want to get your reactions here, uh, to all the fellow gunners out there. How are you feeling? Best, best 90 minutes played under Arteta. Whoa. It's undeniable. Everybody played well. Willian finally looked good. Um, although Muhammad Elneny still trash, David Luiz still trash, but you know, this is a positive result. I think we can build on this and. By next year, we can shoot for Champions League, Premier League titles, maybe the treble. Wow. Who knows? So this yeah. is so you're you're putting this year still in the camp of We're figuring still things building. out, building. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, Saka is the greatest player I think in. The I mean, world. he's the best player. Yeah, he's he's only nineteen, yeah. but I think he's yeah the best player in the world. There's he's a kind soccer of player named Saka. Saka, yeah. Bukayo Saka. He actually, he is a god. He's, he's so unbelievably sick. good. And he's yeah. named after the sport. I'd be pretty sick Saka. if my name was Saka too. <laughs> It'd be embarrassing if he wasn't good at Saka. <laughs> That's good. Um, did, uh, yeah. did did Party play? Is he he came up? on. Okay. No, he came on, um, I think, like at 60 minutes or so. I but... Uh, yeah, Emil Smith Rowe got injured today, which is pretty bad for us. Which I is tough. See that that is tough. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. ESR Saka. So sick, dude. So sick. sick. Yeah. There's finally like a light at the end of the tunnel. But you know, the thing about Arsenal is there's always like some kind of just good moment, maybe like a good month, and then everything just goes to shit. So you can't get your hopes up. You gotta wait, ride it out, just see what happens from here. But it's, it's looking good. Cautious optimism. Yeah, cautious optimism. Got it. Very true. Nice. Did you say William is on Arsenal now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The you guy got, who you from got, Chelsea? Yeah. yeah. He's, he's fucking He's fucking horrible. Yeah, really? He's so bad. bad. Dude, he's he was like dirty trash. in FIFA. Dude, he's like 55 years old. Yeah, he was dirty in FIFA like 09. Like, yeah, he's horrible <laughs> wow. now. But to be fair, to be fair, he did have a good game today. Did have a good game. Or a good match. I, I think. Uh, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was at four o'clock this morning, so I can't. I didn't say. watch it. <laughs> I watched it, but <laughs> I didn't watch it. <laughs> I am I am planning on rewatching it because yeah, the highlights are good. The highlights were good. Cool, nice. I'm not gonna watch it. <laughs> I'm not even gonna watch the highlights. How's Chelsea doing this year? Chelsea's Chelsea's my club. Oh my god, they they just. Yeah, uh, are you following them closely? No, no. no I yeah, guess they, you just no. They yeah. suck. Yeah, they suck. Really, dude. Well, just like considering how much money they spend on their team, they should be doing better. They sacked Frank Lampard. Yep. They got a new manager. They did do, they've been doing pretty well under him, but just like considering the fucking money bags they dump on the team, like they should be doing better. You know what? Pulisic deserves better. 
Yeah, he does deserve better, dude. They're not better, trading him. That's American Wonder Boy, right? Yeah. yeah. And he's I'm, sick. He's Wonder actually Boy. sick. Like, he it's not sick. just an American thing. He's super sick. And yeah. I think he might get traded to uh, Bayern. There's Bayern talks. Yeah, I mean, he someone needs to do right by him. Yeah. You know, Wait, so what's, him. what's the, like, where are we in soccer right now? Is it Champions League? What's um, going on I mean, right now? There's, it's like we're talking the, about Premier League, but Champions League yeah. is going on. Is it like has it started yet? Is it like Sweet Sixteen or it is the group I think it is the round of sixteen. Yeah, it's, it's the round, round of sixteen okay. right now. Yep. Nice. I they probably don't call it Sweet Sixteen as well. <laughs> <They don't. laughs> no, <laughs> but they should. They could. All right, and that was the. Do we have a name for this yet? The football, Darren soccer yeah. thing. I had the, one, but it uh, sucked. Uh, no, your name is good. Mm. the footy cor- footy corner with the flemster yep and that was <laughs> footy corner with the flemster <laughs> i gotta work in my car knees all right that was our show thanks for joining us um next week uh this is crazy news we have a professional athlete nhl current nhl player jake bean former first round draft pick Jake Bean uh, plays for the Carolina Hurricanes. Just scored his first goal the other night. Uh, dude is a legend, and he's going to be joining us. Uh, so this is super exciting. You're going to want to tune in for that. We're talking to a professional hockey player. This is unbelievable. A literal NHL player next week. If there's one episode to listen to next week, it's going to be so, so sick. Uh, so stick around. Subscribe. Jake Bean on the pod next week. Yeah, um, I think we're becoming a full-on Canadian hockey show now. Yeah, you're kind of weird him. for not yeah. being Canadian. I mean, between me growing up there a little bit, two straight guests located or like that are no, Gil wasn't from Canada. He covers the Raptors. He covers the Raptors. And this week's guest, Marnie, who's located in Canada, you're kind of the odd one out. I know, I know. You got to move up north. All right, so Jake Bean next week, professional hockey player. All right, fam. Peace. Peace and love. Today is gonna be the day that they're gonna throw it back to you. By now you should have somehow realized what you gotta do. I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now. Because maybe...